And I want to welcome everybody to Path to CytusCon, the podcast for developers who love Postgres, where we discuss the human side of open source databases, Postgres, and the many brilliant Postgres extensions. This podcast is now available on all of your podcast platforms. You can get to past episodes and get links to the various platforms at aka.ms slash path to CytusCon, all one word. Um, transcripts are included on the episode pages on Transistor 2. And I want to say thank you to the team at Microsoft for sponsoring these community conversations about Postgres. I'm Claire Giordano, one of your hosts. And I'm Pino Ducandia. Today's topic is how I got started as a developer and in Postgres. I'll start by introducing Andres Freund. He's a Postgres hacker, member of the Postgres core team, works at Microsoft, and has been working in the PG community since 2008. And I would like to introduce our second guest, Heiki Linekangas. Uh, he is also a Postgres hacker. Uh, to be a Postgres hacker means to be a Postgres developer and uh, committer and contributor. Um, Heiki is a co-founder of Neon, another database company, and he's been working on Postgres since 2003. Um, Hello. Welcome. Glad to be here. Welcome Thanks. to you both. So the topic for today, of course, is how I got started as a developer and in Postgres. And we wanted to start with the developer side of things and um, hear from both of you about how did you become a developer? When did you become a developer? Why? Um, Andres, do you want to go first? Sure. I think I had, I don't know, at least three or four attempts at becoming a developer, uh, as probably many uh Guys, in that time, I was impressed by games at first and then tried to write a game and then discovered that I actually don't enjoy that at all. Uh, and then stopped and then started again. And at some point, some people asked me to help them write some website with some uh, CMS. And I tried that and I learned a lot of, about programming and about how to not write a CMS because that didn't work. And Later, I was doing my civil service, uh, military service replacement thing. And during that, I was asked to write uh, software for storing clinical study data. And that was the first one that worked a bit better, I would say. Uh, not particularly well, but it worked. And yeah, that got me started as a developer. And soon after, also as a user. Now, how old were you when you were trying to write games or working on a website or ultimately doing the project with clinical study data? I tried to figure that out at some point. I lost all the uh, data from that time, but I think it must have been about 15 when I the first attempts. And then I think a bit later, I started doing like working around computer stuff, like repair, building them for people and uh, teaching seniors to use computers. Uh, that must have been like when I was about 17. And then the first time I was paid and then didn't succeed was also around that time. And then I think when I actually did like that clinical study data thing, it was about 20. Okay. Andres, what happened? what happened in between? When you stopped, did you just stop cold or did you keep uh, studying some coding? 
and 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 what what convinced you to get started again? If you'd sort of had a bad experience, what got you back? Long time ago, uh, I don't think I really like stopped you doing stuff with computers. I did like a lot of sysadmin stuff. I ran like I did sysadmin stuff for like a bunch of networks that were, you know, somewhere between thirty and hundred computers or something, and that involved occasionally some scripting and so on. So that was programming adjacent enough that I think I had like continued exposure, and because of that, I also learned on the job in a way. I didn't like focus on learning things, but now that you actually, I had completely forgotten that. But I also did some attending computer science. There was a program to attend computer science uh, at university while being uh, like in school, and I think I did that. I don't quite remember what years that was, so but I guess that also helped me understand some more. No, I first met you back in 2017, I think. And if I remember correctly, you do not have a formal four-year university training in computer science. That's so correct. you learned on the job? You're self-taught? I'm largely self-taught. I did, uh, after that civil service uh, year, it wasn't quite a year, but like close to a year, I worked for a few months and then did attend university, but I worked at the, like, half of the time worked, half of the time attended university, and, I don't know, uh, it turned out to be a bit too much to do both of those, and uh, I think I did the first few semesters of, like, a computer science and a math degree, and then decided that uh, didn't quite agree with my personality and my priorities and focused on uh, working full-time. Uh, it perhaps did not help that the database class talked about Postgres and had by that time done a few Postgres contributions and uh, the professor was not necessarily always accurate when talking about Postgres and I could unfortunately tell. And that perhaps didn't make me feel I was learning all that much. I'm not sure that was quite accurate, but uh, yeah. I think there was, I'm not sure I would have learned, uh, would be as good as I am now if I hadn't done the theoretical computer science uh, part uh, at university, because that is the thing I think that was the hardest to pick up on a day-to-day -day basis, just programming. Many of the other things were easier to learn on the job compared to uh, the theoretical computer science part. But I have to, I have to, I have to ask if you, I have, sorry to interrupt, but I have to ask if, if when you were in that class and they were talking about Postgres and you knew the internals better, did you, did you speak up and say, ah, it's not that way, it's like this? Or did yes. you, and, and how, did, how did it go? <laughs> how do you think back at how annoying it must have been? <laughs> oh, we can see it in a different way. I mean, that's participation. Probably both views could be held <laughs> validly. Have you ever gone yeah, back yeah. and talked to that professor again? Uh, no, I don't think he was uh, an all that good professor. 
So okay. I didn't feel like I don't feel like bad for you know, annoying the professor. I might have been annoying to my fellow students. Okay, that could be true. I don't know. But it's interesting that even though you didn't complete the degree and you decided to dive full time into being a developer and sounds like into working on Postgres, you still credit some of that theoretical learning from those classes as a positive. Yeah, I think the programming aspect, I didn't really need at that point to learn that in university because I had done more programming than we did uh, as part of that. And I had done a bit of database internals work and uh, other larger programs. So uh, I don't know, the manual labor type aspects I had a good hand handle on it. Like understanding complexity theory and stuff like that is just harder, I think, to get a good handle on without like some of the theoretical background. Okay. All right. Let's let's um, switch to Heiki for just a moment. Um, Heiki, can you tell us how you got your start as a developer? Well, so I started programming already as a kid. My I have a ten years old brother uh, who was a. Uh, got his first computer when I was probably around four or five years old. And so I was watching him uh, typing in programs to Commodore 64. And, and I was, of course, looking up to him and also wanted to learn. And, and that was really fascinating. So I, I started by just following and looking at what he's doing, following his footsteps. Uh, and I think by the time I was around 10, I got my own, own first computer, which was an Amiga, and I started to learn basic on that. And then I started moved on to C programming. And Andres' story just reminded me that I also wrote a game when I was around 15 with a, with a friend who did the graphics. It was a ninja game. Uh, it's probably still out there somewhere. Uh, if, if you have an Amiga emulator, you can probably find it. Uh, so that's how I started started with programming. But moving on to developer, I, I got my first job as a developer when I was 19, I think, uh, at a local uh, uh, software firm at the consultancy. Uh, it was a mom and pop, small mom and pop uh, company. Literally, it was a mom and pop running that. And uh, and they were yeah they were gracious enough to hire me and. Uh, that's where I learned SQL. Like they, they put me on a crash course on learning SQL, and uh, and I did some Java programming there and learned Delphi and uh, and learned about databases, which I didn't have any experience before. So that was my first touch with databases. They used uh, Firebird uh, or Interbase, it was called back then, and Sybase and and some other databases there. That's really jumping into the swimming pool. <laughs> yeah, that was a, and but that was a great experience. I already knew how to program when I when I joined that company, uh, but they they helped to learn SQL and it was a fun. It was a nice company as a for first job because they uh, they they also had other people there who were uh, learning to program and learning to be software engineers. Uh, so they took a chance on a 19 year old <laughs> uh, with no degree at that point, of course, and uh, and so forth. So that was very nice. Can we go back for a second to 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 uh, your experience with your brother? I was asking myself, was that your first programming buddy, your pair programming buddy? No, I don't think I ever programmed with him. I just always watched him, and and he explained how 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 things work. And I remember uh, him staring at a disassembler, uh, working on some demo code or something. 
but I don't think I ever like did programming with him. Okay, okay. Well, you're, you, that has all the elements of nostalgia, you know, the, the programming <laughs> Commodore sixty four and your older brother. I love it. It could be a part of a of a movie. It's, I think that was a pretty common experience. Like, not. I mean, it was more common at that age or era that the people actually had like their first Commodore sixty four. And like, I know my brother had several friends who also learned to program. Uh, which I don't think is that common nowadays, or maybe people just have different paths with web development nowadays or something. But, but that was more common back then, at least here. Do you mind if I ask, did your brother ultimately become a developer too, or did he go <laughs> yeah. off into a completely different industry? He did. He, he did do programming. He worked for Nokia uh, for and worked on networks and, and stuff. All right. So... A lot of people who listen to this podcast are into Postgres. They either use it or they, they contribute to it themselves. And so they're probably curious about how you got your start in Postgres, particularly. So um, what happened? What was the trigger? Was there a single moment? Or um, And let's start with you this time, Heike. So... So I got started with Postgres. I was working at a different company at that point. It was a few years later after after my first job. Uh, so I, at, at work, I was writing Java code uh, with a DB2 database. Um, and I started to look around open source projects uh, to work on. And uh, the bigger first big contribution I made was a two-phase commit to, to Postgres. And the story behind that is that I was actually on paternity leave with my second child. Uh, and she was a good sleeper. Like I, that was a very easy time. Uh, but I had a couple of months of uh, feeding the baby and then uh, watching her sleep. And I had a lot of spare time, so time on my hands. So I started to look around for open source projects to work on. And, and at this point, I was, uh, I was a big fan of the relational model and databases as a user of databases. But I hadn't worked on any of the database internals. Uh, so I started to look at, look at open source database uh, projects. So I looked at the MySQL code base, you know, if, you know, how do these things work under the hood? And I, and then I found Postgres and that was a lot nicer to work with. Uh, so I started to poke around and just read a lot of the source codes and, and, and the Postgres source code is pretty nice to read. There's a lot of comments explaining stuff and uh, a lot of history there at that point already. Uh, so I, I quite enjoyed that. Um, so the first patch I wrote was was for, or the first major patch was for two-phase commit, uh, to implement two-phase commit in Postgres, because I noticed that was missing in, in Postgres at, that, at the time, and that was something I was using with DB2 at work, uh, coincidentally, at the same time. Why did you Two-phase commit is, oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead why, there. Why did you find Postgres nicer to work with, specifically? I can't explain it, I guess. I, I looked at the code base, and it just, uh, it was, uh, it was a pleasure to read. It was uh, understandable, you, and you know, I could find my way around it. Is that still true today? <laughs> I like to think so. I I hope I haven't made things worse over the years, uh, but <laughs> I like to think so. Uh, there there are probably other good code bases around uh, when that that are equally good, or you know. But I still enjoy working with Postgres. Of course, by the time by by now, I know all the nooks and crannies, and all it doesn't. Like it doesn't look as clean and nice to me anymore because I know that some of the things that might look that they're nice and clean are actually dirty hacks I put in five years ago or something. But uh, 
but yeah, I, I still hope that it's it's approachable to new developers. You know, you were going to ask about 2PC. That's right. I was going to ask about 2PC because it's a pretty technical topic uh, and it's, uh, you know, sort of foundations of computer science type topic. Uh, was that uh, <laughs> very challenging? Well, you know, I didn't know that back then. I was a self-built programmer and I didn't know how hard it should be. Uh, but uh, that is, yeah, I didn't find it that particularly hard. But of course, the thing that happened that happens to a lot of people who write their first patch to Postgres is that when Tom Lane committed it, uh, like the patch that was committed didn't look very much like the patch I actually submitted. Uh, so, uh, so, but I was I was glad about that anyway. I'm proud of the first patches. Awesome. So, um, one of the things when Pino and I were preparing the set of questions that we wanted to ask you is we realized that. We don't. I don't even know all of the scope of the types of contributions, the types of projects that you each have worked on. Like we, you just told us, you've worked on two-phase commit, Heiki, as your first project, and I know that Andres has been very much involved in asynchronous I/O and direct I/O in recent years. But I'm curious if you can each give us examples um, of the the pro types of projects you've worked on, and then we need to go find out more about. Andres's start in Postgres 2 after that university class. But first, types of projects. Okay, you're not both answering at once. You're both being respectful of each other. Okay, <laughs> yes. um, Andres, go first, please. So the first, my first contribution to Postgres. Uh, yeah. It's kind of related to the uh, question about how it got started with Postgres. Uh, Perfect. I some program using Postgres, and it had a very, very bad schema design. And because of that bad schema design, the Postgres planner had really difficult time planning my queries and would often not finish ever. So uh, because it was using the genetic query optimizer. So my first contribution was making something in the genetic query optimizer faster. But like it didn't actually address any of the actual problems because it just made like I don't even remember what something faster, uh, but like didn't fix the algorithmic issue, and I think I report like sent a patch to improve something and then uh, Tom Lane uh, rewrote that part of GQ within like I don't know two days or something, and which completely obsoleted my patch, and I think there were a few more changes like this. Uh, where I submitted something and it turned out to be like fixing the wrong problem. And I think uh, one of the first things that I then got merged was uh, like making uh, random numbers in Postgres uh, not less random in a way by allowing to initialize them to some value and uh, so that uh, GQ could be made reproducible, so that, uh, which was important for testing and stuff like that. I think after that, I. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And 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 do we have time for a quick detour to what is genetic query optimizer? That sounds fascinating. It's a newbie question. Is that still used? It's still used sometimes. Uh, in the end, like if you, like Postgres needs to opt, like or tries to optimize in which order to do joins, and if you do that exhaustively, it is very very expensive, especially exponential. 
uh, you can't do that if you have very large numbers of joins just because of the costs. So uh, after a while, Postgres tries to use some approximate uh, solution. And I think back at that time, the you know, in vogue uh, approach for that was uh, genetic optimizations, which was basically trying to mutate something like a prior guest approach and then see whether it is better than something before. And uh, that's the genetic query optimizer and has like different approaches. And a lot of those are different approaches are if deft out, it's all a bit odd. I think the limits at which point it gets used have increased over time, but uh, it's still used if you have like uh, tables with uh, or queries with lots of joins. There's some uh, gucks for configuration variables that say after one when it's used a join collapse limit and something else uh, another guck that controls when it gets used. Okay, that, that's fascinating, both both for the for technical reasons and because it's sort of a bit of history and trends in computer science. Th thanks, thanks for that. It's Very interesting. Optimizer, it's... by the way, like it, it, it's it works kind of sometimes, uh, but if somebody <laughs> had the energy rewriting it from scratch, would probably be a good idea at some point. It's interesting that you both mentioned Tom Lane as the reviewer for your first patch submission. And nowadays, you're both committers. So you both are probably the first reviewer for other people's patch submissions. Um, maybe maybe you could spend just a moment and explain that whole process. I mean, basically, any contribution before it goes into Postgres has to get reviewed by somebody who's a Postgres committer um, and or other contributors. Is that right? Yeah, it has to be yeah. reviewed by somebody. Uh, it doesn't have often the first round of review. It doesn't isn't a committer just because uh, of scalability issues. Like given the amount of attention committers have, and then eventually the patch needs to get merged, and that has to be done by a committer because we are the only ones that have the right like to push to the repository. Uh, and I think it does one thing that has changed since at least the time I started contributing and now is that I think back then the time until your patch got reviewed and potentially merged has increased a fair bit just because the project has grown a lot and the patches have gotten a lot more complicated. So I think that does make it harder a bit to get started today than back then. In principle, the process is very simple. You write a patch and you attach it to an email and you send it to the hackers mailing list, and then it gets committed by a committer. In practice, that that rarely happens so easily, but there's always some back and forth. And depending on what the patch is, there might be you know you might need to rewrite it. And 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 what Andres is alluding to is that often what happens is that no one pays attention to your patch, and and then it gets harder harder to do. Uh, so yeah, in principle, there is there's very little barrier to entry, but uh, getting someone's attention to review your patches is always a problem. Even for committers, it's a problem like, to to uh, get the attention of others to review your patches. Got it. So part it of like are one you of saying that part of? I, I'm just going to go ahead. Are you saying that part of being a successful contributor these days is not just 
um, architecting and programming and, and um, coding your work properly, but it's also building the relationships and the trust and communicating effectively with the other contributors and reviewers to make it yeah, happen. All of that helps a lot. I think it actually really begins with being the right problem to try to fix or solve. Like we get a lot of contributions that are kind of not interesting to a lot of people, or they take they might fix your problem, but it might might cause other problems. And it's often hard to to as a reviewer. It's it, those are the the most difficult ones because. I mean, what can you even say on those things? They, I mean, I can see why someone wrote the patch because it fixes their problem, but but you can't really accept it either. Uh, or maybe even the worst ones are are features that no one just pays attention to. And, and if it's a problem that someone is facing, it's it's certainly a problem for them, but it might not be a problem that others are acutely feeling. Yeah, that's one thing about Postgres. There's no there's no pre-agreed upon roadmap of what's a priority for the next release, right? It feels very bottoms up in terms of what happens. Am I correct in that perspective? Yeah, that's right. There's no agreed on roadmap. People submit patches on what they decide to work on. Okay. And if you submit a patch based on something that nobody else cares about, you're potentially going to have a harder time getting it reviewed. Is that is that what you're saying? For sure, yes. Okay. I think the harder, those are, like, if it's clearly something that nobody else wants, it's kind of not too bad. Like, the, the harder cases is where, like, everyone thinks, like, I guess I can see a point, but it doesn't really interest me. And if everyone thinks like that, then nobody has the heart to say, we want to reject this. But also, nobody will ever go around and actually do the work to integrate it or review it. And I think those are the ones that tend to linger for a long time, which is not great. I could see how that just would create frustration. A hard no is, is, is always better. So last week, um... PGConf New York City happened in New York City, obviously. And I was talking to Melanie Plagman, who has been a guest on the show previously with Thomas Monroe on a similar topic, how you got started in, in, as a developer and in Postgres. Um, and she's also a Postgres contributor. And she just chimed in on the chat with a question of, I'm interested in how both of you decided to stick with Postgres and seek a job where you were basically paid to work on Postgres patches full-time. So let's talk about that. Uh, hey, Keith? That's an interesting one. So I, uh, the idea of contributing to open source, and like I've always, always been a big fan of open source, so the, like from a like spiritual point of view. <laughs> so, so I wanted to find a job working on open source and on Postgres. Uh, so I happened to know this uh, advertisement from Enterprise DB back in the day on the Postgres jobs mailing list. Uh, that was from Simon Riggs, so I replied to that and uh, and I got the job. And I think I think Andres has that in common. I think Andres, you also worked your first full time professional Postgres job was also with uh, Simon Riggs a few years later, but with, with his, his private company. And actually, looking back, I think a lot of the committers and contributors, uh, you know, have that in common. That they've worked for for him at some point. <laughs> they worked yeah, for Simon. I think it was quite the yeah. first job, but it depends a bit on your definition. I did like a couple of years of consulting on my own around Postgres, where it was like Postgres 
interacting with the operating system, interacting with the application code. So it was like part of it, but not the whole. And then I, at some point, uh, did that, but like indirectly via second quadrant, and then worked more and more for second quadrant. But yeah, I definitely got a lot of my deeper, like more time developing time uh, when working for second quadrant first. But what made you decide to stick with Postgres and, you know, do it full time? How did that happen for both of you? I think it was one step for me. Like initially, I just did like consulting type stuff, and occasionally I would find Postgres problems, and then would look into them. And sometimes there were bugs, or like some minor missing feature. Uh, I think shortly, like around the time I got started, one of the big features that got was being worked on was hot standby, and that was I did like code contributions to that, but I did like a lot of review of it. And I did, I'm not sure that I had that much useful stuff to say because I was pretty new, but uh, I had actual potential users for it. So I looked into that and reviewed it a bunch and then put it into production, found a bunch of problems. And so there was this interaction between what m people that were paying me wanted and the Postgres community. And so it was interesting to continue down that. And I think at second quadrant, it was kind of similar. I didn't do full-time development at the start. Uh, I did a good bit of consulting and support type stuff, and over time, more and more development work. But I think I never had a full-time development job until like many years later. When was that? It must have been like 2016, 17, 18, 18? 2018, I think. I think uh, I at some point I joined after second quadrant I joined Citus and there my Postgres development time was officially fifty percent, uh, and then but it was not always easy to find the time for that fifty percent. And I think around that, and I was the only one working at Postgres on Postgres itself at Citus, which was one. Then I went to Enterprise DB, and there I had a full time. Uh, Postgres development job. I think that was the first one. I think that was 2018 or something. But it's a bit hard to remember now. Got it. Did you move? Did you move to work on Postgres, or or were these already um, um, remote development jobs? I moved to the US when working for Citus, but I didn't do it full time. I, that was 50% on Citus, 50% on uh, Postgres. So I guess that qualifies in a way, but I was also doing about 50% development beforehand at uh, second quarter and that was remote. Um, so I think I mostly and, did it remotely. And then even when you switched to Enterprise DB, whenever that was 2018 or something like that, you just stayed in the US. You did not physically move locations, correct? Yes. So and you just worked remotely. Yes. Even pre-COVID. Um, yes. I've worked much more of my career remotely than in on location. OK, so Heike, going back to, to Melanie's question, what made you decide to stick with Postgres and seek a job where you could work 
full-time. I know you said you landed, you saw this post from Simon Riggs and you got a job at Enterprise DB. So was that just opportunistic or was that deliberate on your part? You wanted to work on Postgres full-time. I think it's opportunistic, although, I mean, I guess there was a reason I was looking at the Postgres jobs mailing list. Uh, so um, There's that. So I, I, there must have been something in the back of my mind uh, thinking about that opportunity back then. I don't really remember anymore. Uh, but what made me stick? I, I don't know. I, I guess nothing, nothing really ever drew me away from from that path. So there, I've been. That's what I've been. I've been on that path since. Okay. So one of the questions we did not answer earlier was Heike. Um, can you give us a few examples of? projects that you've worked on in the Postgres space beyond that first project with two-phase commit. Um, is there is there something you're known for? Um, at some point, people called me the B3 guy. Uh, so I, I guess I did a lot of stuff on indexes, um, various little optimizations, nothing major, I think. Uh, but I, I fixed a lot of issues or worked a lot on, on write-ahead logging. Uh, so the transaction logging of Postgres, uh, I did some big refactoring there uh, to to write a PG Rewind. That was one of the things I I wrote at some point. Um, so a lot of lot of work around around storage, write ahead logging, and, and and indexes. I guess those those are the main parts. Got it. And then um, Andres, back to that question of example types of projects, because I think it's useful to learn yeah. from like. Are you always working in the same part of Postgres or or has is there some breadth to the type of work you've done? It definitely has changed uh, over time. One of the features I spent like was being paid to work on over a long stretch of time was uh, logical decoding, which is basically uh, work that happens on the source side for logical replication for to get all the changes that happen. Uh, and to extract them from the wall in a logical form that can be applied to another server. That took quite a while. And one of the things that was very interesting about that as a project was that it involved touching lots of different parts of Postgres because it just involves the wall logging part, involves the how do our catalogs represent it, it involves like transaction visibility and uh, lots of other parts, and that was what one of the big projects I worked on. Another big theme from around that like the earlier time was making the locking algorithms in Postgres scale better. At the time, uh, we only the only a Primitive. We didn't have like a lock, uh, any lock-free algorithms because we didn't have any atomic operation support in Postgres. So one of the other big projects I did at the time was to introduce an atomic operations abstraction, and then use that for to imp uh, improve various parts of Postgres to make them scale better across uh, larger systems. Because and the motivation for that initially was that during my uh, consulting time. I saw a lot of systems that couldn't scale uh, further and were like spending lots of time in small pieces of code. And that was at the time much harder to see on like the systems that developers had because 
most developers didn't have multi-socket systems and so on. Uh, but it was already on the bigger end, very visible, and so I tried to resolve those, and that was work for a couple of years. Okay. Now, now that we've asked you about some of what you've programmed, I want to ask you how you program. And I'm thinking of this the way you'd ask, you know, a writer: How do you write? You know, what time of day? Um, do you have a cup of coffee with you? Some tea? How do you get into the zone? How how long do you stay in the zone? Can each of you answer that question? Maybe maybe I'll start with Heiki. Emacs. I use Emacs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I I mean that's a good question. It, getting into the flow requires first of all ignoring all the uh, distractions. So I I tend to turn off Slack and notifications. Um, that's one thing. I, I do a lot of experimentation, so I write a lot of patches that never go anywhere just to, to test uh, and see what, what might make sense. And uh, and then once once the prototype's done, I often I often start to just keep polishing that until it becomes something that can be can be reviewed by other others. Do you have a favorite place where you like to to do your work? Uh, an office, uh, a coffee shop, um, and and you code at all hours of the day? I, I code all hours of the day. Uh, my typical routine is that I, I, I wake up in the morning and uh, and uh, that's when I get my kind of first shift of, of, of coding. And then there, then in the afternoon, when the house is more busy with, uh, with the family, then I often you know take a break for dinner and so forth. Uh, and then I do more in the evening or after, after the kids are in bed. Uh, so that's my typical routine. Uh, yeah, will we'll start a question? No, I think that's it. Just wanted to know sort of where and how and uh, right where. So I work from home. So that that's but at home I tend to switch places. So I I don't have a big screen. For example, I I work on my laptop all the time, uh, which is you know 15 inch screen. Uh, but I like to move around the house. So sometimes on the, I'm on the sofa, sometimes on the kitchen table, sometimes in in bedroom. So that I try to vary that throughout hmm. the day. Wait a minute. Why don't you have a big screen? Like, should we get you a big screen? Would you Would you get more done? Um, <laughs> I, I I find myself so constrained when I have to work just on my laptop, and the fonts are small, and I can't have as many windows, and it drives me bonkers. <laughs> Maybe I, you know, I've never tried. I do actually have a screen here, but I never use it. I I think I'm a little afraid that if I get into the habit of using the big screen, I can't go back. Mm. And and it would limit your mobility, right? If you want to change, it would, it would yeah, definitely and... limit the mobility. Yes. Okay, Andres, what about you? I love Pino's question about how how you code, like when, where, what's your routine? Is there a special drink? Well, espresso, I guess. Knowing you, yeah, I also use Emacs uh, and have basically since I started programming, um, which is probably more like I'm used to it and. It's too late to change. Um, I work different hours of the day, but I think I get more work done in the evening when I feel like I don't need to check in with work email or Teams or any other like instant messaging. Not having like not being distracted for a while is for a lot of work. The, 
best, like the, the most crucial ingredient for me. But it really depends on the type of work. I find it often easier to do stuff like bug investigations because like, I don't know, the pressure to fi figure out the problem and makes it easier to get into the zone. And the next step is often clearer, whereas like solving or like exploring a space where there's nothing to follow, I have to figure it out on my own. That is hard to get, to get started uh, with. So for writing patches for new features, the hardest bit is like getting into the zone. And once I'm in the zone, I unfortunately can stay in the zone uh, until I drop. Uh, there's no real limit, which is not necessarily healthy. But uh, yeah. so no food, no you, drink. You might not go to sleep till 3 in the morning or something? That has happened on more than one occasion, yes. Uh, I'm, I do like drink uh, some coffee or for a while I had, uh, was drinking mate while developing, uh, but I think it's, that's more important before getting into the zone than once in the zone. Once in the zone, it doesn't really matter because I'm in the zone. Now, you both refer to yourselves as Postgres hackers. Um, you know, in other communities, I think hacker has a bunch of different meanings than it does in the Postgres world. So um, can one of you please define what, it, what does it mean to be a Postgres hacker? Is that the same as a Postgres developer? Yes, it's the same. Uh, I think historically, hacker was not necessarily the person that was trying to break into a computer systems or something. It was, there was an old jargon file definition of somebody that creatively interacts with technology. Uh, and I think the reason that it sticks around in the Postgres uh, world is that the main development list is called PGSQL hackers. So people that are on hackers call themselves hackers. I'm not sure that otherwise it would still be in common uh, parlance, given that it has changed the meaning a lot towards uh, uh, computer security related context. Okay. One of the things that I love about the Postgres community is it's not just that the code is open source. It's that everything that the community does is open and transparent. So anybody who's here or listening to this podcast can go and look at the PG SQL hackers mailing list and see the conversation between the contributors and the people submitting patches and the people reviewing them. Um, is that, I mean, does that appeal to you as well when you were making the decision to work on Postgres? Was it important to you that the whole um, decision-making process and development process was open? I think implicitly it did. Like I can actually, that is a good reason to tell like some part of the origin story. I, uh, the first contribution I tried to make to uh, an RDBMS was actually not to Postgres. I found some bugs in my SQL and I reported them and did not hear back <laughs> for quite a while. And the process around that was very opaque. Uh, I don't know actually whether that was just because I didn't follow the rules or whatever, um, but then a bit later I contributed to Postgres and it was uh, much easier to see what was happening. 
And because of that, I found it much more appealing. But it wasn't like a conscious uh, analysis of the situation. Uh, it was more like how I was experiencing it and how that worked out. Got it. What about you, Hickey? Was it appealing to you that the development processes were all open to the world? Sure, yeah. Yeah, the, the open, open nature of that is, is very appealing. I didn't quite know how the community operates back then, and it has also evolved over the years a lot. I find it all very fascinating these days how, how well it really works, even though there is no formal structure behind any of these things. And like, who can, who can call themselves you know, Postgres hacker or developer? There's no, there's no rules, really. Anything goes. And uh, even even the official project is, is very distributed and there's separate teams uh, doing the infra stuff. There's the core team, then there's the committers and the packagers. And those are not like the same people. It's it's overlapping overlapping sets of people who decided to work on parts of the whole ecosystem. And then there's the extensions. It's all very, very vague and not well defined, but somehow it seems to work. And the, I find that really fascinating. So we've been trying to ask you questions to dig into your origin stories and how you got your start and why why you stayed, right? Why you're still working on Postgres. Um, there's another question in the chat also from Melanie about how each of you approaches mentoring um, other contributors um, who are starting to work on Postgres full time. And um, how is it, what, What's easy and what's a challenge as you mentor um, tomorrow's Postgres, you know, committers, if you will. I mean, that I'm all I'm all open for suggestions on how to do that better. Actually, like I don't know how to do that. <laughs> kind of trying, I guess, to be pleasant and and uh, uh, teach how things work. If someone submits a patch, explain why and you know what what to look after and so forth. Uh, I did participate as a mentor in the Google Summer of Code a few years, but I actually stopped doing that because I felt like I, I, did, I don't know how to do that properly, and uh, it, it's not really fair to the <laughs> mentees if if they get a bad mentor. So I actually stopped doing that. But uh, so yeah, I'm I'm all ears if people have suggestions on that. Nikki, does that mean that mostly your 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 uh, mentoring is uh, sort of asynchronous, remote, uh, where? You know, you're interacting over the email thread about the patch, uh, and um, or or do you pick up the phone sometimes if 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 things get too complicated for for text? Yeah, I've I've always done it over email, but picking up the phone probably would be the right right thing to do in some many cases, uh, but I haven't done that. Andres, what about you? How do you approach mentoring um, contributors who are are new to Postgres? I found, one thing that I found is that it differs a lot between people, what works for them. There are some people where what they're lacking most is like a prompt response to like technical questions. There are other people that are looking for a direction what to do, and others are, I don't know need to check in that what they're doing is not uh, a bad idea. So I found that when I do it, I have to vary it a lot. And one of the difficulties I have is that I would say I didn't have a lot of mentoring 
experience towards me, so I don't really have anything good to model. It's more like experimenting and uh, trying to figure it out. Um, so I don't think I have really like a formal approach that I follow over and over. It's more like I try to do it and I change it if it doesn't work and then change it more. Uh, I think it's not part of the Postgres community that is super strong. I think we have there's been a lot of one kind of mentoring. I think there have been plenty of committers that have like seen that somebody's growing and then spent more time on their patches, but that's uh, like a very distant form of mentoring, if you can call it that. And it doesn't really, it only works for people that are like mentees that are themselves very self-directed people that are mostly looking for the technical input rather than like something more than that. And I think as a community, we could definitely do better around that. I think it was Melanie that uh, mentioned to me that um, I, you all were either planning or had done some hands-on sessions at, at uh, PGConf. Um, did that happen? I think we are, I mean, uh, on what you mean with hands-on are... session. Because Melanie's, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. They've always been mentoring, I would say, at PGCon, but like just in a very informal one, one, one or one to two kind of um, ways by just discussing the products people are working on and talking. But uh, I, don't, I think we've been talking about doing something more formal and more organized than that, but I don't think it has happened at a real scale yet. But I think Melanie's actually working on uh, organizing some more of that. Yeah, yeah so Melanie just commented those are next year in the in the chat. Exactly. And what does exist today and so far is that I think Melanie and somebody else, uh, and I think one of these was featured in today's Postgres Weekly newsletter that just got published, but they have created sessions where they walk you through how to submit your first patch. So those types of um, tutorials or classes exist today, but yeah, I think Melanie, as she just said in the chat, is working on a more formal workshop that will grow Postgres um, contributors, people who have contributed already and want to take on more and do more. And um, there's a lot of thought going into thinking about, well, what do they need? Um, what I think is so fascinating about what you just said, Andres, is that you basically recognize that there is no one size fits all when it comes to mentoring, right? People are different and they each have different different gaps or different needs. And so part of like, there are people who can only mentor one way. And so that means they can only serve like a subset of the people who are looking for a mentorship. Um, but it sounds like you're trying to meet the needs of what the different folks are looking for. And I think that, I mean, that that's huge and that's valuable, um, but it's not always easy. And sometimes you- That also to... does not mean that I can actually do that successfully for everyone's needs. Like, even if I try to vary it, that I definitely have strength and have weaknesses like everybody else. So. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> there's, there's, um, you're really good, but you're probably not superhuman is what you're saying. Is that right? Uh, that is definitely true. 
And so, mentoring um, is a different skill set. Like it's not, uh, it's probably not a good assumption that any of the people who are currently developing Postgres would be very good mentors. Like uh, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you're good at teaching. It's a separate skill set. So I, if there are people in the community who are good at mentoring, that I think that's super valuable. I suspect though that the bottleneck is more people not doing it and not being used to it than the actual like absolute lack of skill or something. Yeah, I mean, many others definitely a, like you could grow it course. to a certain degree at least. And I'm sure it's a skill you could learn or like any other skill, but uh, but I don't think a lot of people just innately have it. I, I wonder I wonder if all Jedi in Star Wars aspire to have a Padawan at some point, at some point, or perhaps they there are some Jedi that never do. That's something I'll have to go look up. But I've, uh, I've often what? you lost me there. What what's a Padawan? I'm not a Star Wars person. Talk oh, I see. Well, the, you know the Jedi. Yeah, yeah. They can okay. use the Force. They have lightsabers. Um, well, often we encounter Jedi that have Padawans. Padawans are trainees, and so a Jedi um, will have. Usually only one. Uh, so I'm not not sure if there are any exceptions, but has a Padawan trainee that that is sort of their uh, mentee. Um, and 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 so I'm, I'm I was trying to be a bit facetious, but even there, it's 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 a good point. Sort of any anyone who has a very um, specialized skill set, um, um, there's a separate question of can they teach it as well. Um, but perhaps in ma in mastering the uh, the the, the skill set. Teaching possibly is one of the um, maybe one of the steps that everyone could aspire to. I agree with Heike that the ability to teach is a separate skill set. Um, but I but I also um, I, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't like to do the cooking in the family, and uh, my sister was very good at baking, and so I I made a point of broiling a cake once. Which apparently you're not supposed to do, and isn't isn't doesn't make for a very tasty cake. But I boiled it, and was therefore I was able to say, yeah, I just I just can't cook. I don't have those skills, and I was able to get out of that work. And I'm not accusing anybody who's not mentoring of of being as as um, as devious, the right word, as I was as a teenager trying to avoid all the cooking responsibilities. But um, I do think that. You have to, if you're going to become a good mentor, you do have to be comfortable being uncomfortable in the beginning. And you do have to be willing to try and learn, even though you might not get it quite right in the beginning. I do think that potential is in a lot of people. It just takes time to develop it. So I guess I'm agreeing with what Andra said too. I would actually say that meant the teaching part of mentoring is often, and not for some people it is the biggest part, but for a lot of people it's only a relatively small part. And it's more like the being a sounding board, giving a bit of directional advice and uh, taking some fears away. That is, I think, the most important bit. But like for others, it's also teaching like more technical things, but really different. So there's teaching and there's coaching and there's listening. There's all those things. Okay. So um 
one of the questions that came up as we prepared for today, uh, in the introductions in the very beginning, we mentioned that, Andres, you are on the Postgres core team. And somebody said, well, what does it mean to be on the Postgres core team? What is the Postgres core team? Um, what's your short elevator answer to that question? Uh, it is a good question. I think we could, as a community, definitely uh, outline that better. I think in the end, it's basically the place where things that could not be resolved in another way go. That is one aspect. And another aspect is that there are some issues that, for various reasons, cannot be discussed publicly. And one obvious thing is like legal issues you can't you can't discuss something in a public way and then still have uh, confidentiality, obviously. And sometimes in a legal context that is required. So that is another aspect that the core teams deal with. But I think in general, the core team does a lot less than what a lot of people uh, expect uh, the core team to do. And I think the core team also, and this is largely before my time has, used to have more uh, things that uh, the core team did than it does now. It used to be, for example, that the core team nominated who would become a committer. Uh, but these days, that's done by the existing committers. And so most of the core, several of the core team members are committers. So in that role, the core team contributes to that discussion, but not uh, in their role as a core team member. OK. So it's not like um, another project steering committee, where a lot of people associate the steering committee with um, steering the direction of the project, right? Roadmaps and such. It's not like that. But there is some amount of um, a super high-level oversight of the overall project. Did I get that right? Yeah. I think it's like... If you if they're like normally the technical direction is done on the public list by everyone, but sometimes like such conflicts become like so discussions become very personal or cannot be resolved and have like continued on and on. And in those cases sometimes the core team has intervened or tried to resolve it and sometimes that involves uh getting away from like a public consensus to just making a call at some point because the community just could not reach a consensus. But I think those cases are very, very far uh, in between. Like, I think there have been at most a handful of those. And sometimes it's the core team gets involved when there are personality clashes and stuff like that. But that's also not a technical decision, really. It's more like escalating things that could not be handled in another way. Okay. So yeah, it's not, right. there's no directional steering of the roadmap or any of that. All right. So yeah. that's a bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's a bit of a segue from the whole topic of how you became a developer, how you got involved in um, Postgres. Um, we talked a little bit about how you each got your start, and you have in common that you are self-taught um, programmers. Um, and what I'm curious about is our other contributors to Postgres, do they have similar stories to yours or are there different, different origin stories too? Like how similar have your paths been to all the other contributors that you know? 
I guess you would have to ask the other other contributors that one thing that I find fascinating or like surprising about my path is that I've never really used Postgres. I, I started as a developer without without the, the journey of using Postgres professionally uh, myself. Uh, I, I think it's pretty common that people start by using and running into a problem and then fixing the problem and getting hooked. Uh, but there are there are a lot of there are a lot of different paths. I know that yeah, was Thomas Monroe's story, and he called it like scr needing to scratch an itch. That's how he got involved. Andres? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different paths. Uh, there's some people that come from the university background that have done hacking on Postgres as part of their some database course. There's people that come uh, that worked on other databases and moved to Postgres because uh, they were sick of all their work. Uh, being not available to themselves after they left that company. It really varies from what I've, but there's definitely other self-taught people. Uh, I don't, I have not recognized one common pattern. I do agree that the, one of the interesting different types of Postgres contributors, uh, how to differentiate types of Postgres contributors is uh, whether they use Postgres uh, or not. I found that there's a surprising number of Postgres developers that have never or very little used Postgres themselves. I think one of the reasons that I was able to succeed was that I was actually uh, consulting around Postgres. So I was seeing a lot of problems that people had with Postgres uh, when used in anger. And that allowed me to see people uh, the problems that other Postgres developers didn't see, which then, which basically provided a niche for me to exist uh, or to work on where I had like a small advantage over others because I was still seeing all those day-to-day -day problems by people. Did you say when used in anger? Yes, like when, it, if you use Postgres in a toy context, it will teach you something about using Postgres, but you will not see the same type of problems as if you if like where you see like when it breaks down in production and why it broke down in production or why it's when it's too slow under high load you're not typically going to see those in a real world context if you just use it in a for some small application for home monitoring or whatever it is for a small website because you're just not going to put enough load on it to for that to matter okay um, no. I actually think that empathy for the end user is hugely important, and it's a superpower for whoever manages to develop it, because there are so many individuals, and it doesn't have to be as a developer, you could be in other disciplines um, in the technology space, right? Whether you're a manager, or you work on documentation, or you work in marketing, but um, when you optimize for yourself or you don't fully understand like that that end user you're going to make different decisions than if you're really laser focused on kind of that real world customer and what what they need and and their pain there's a funny story back in eight postgres 8.4 days i was working on a patch to do to rewrite the free space map and one of the the advantages of that was that you never you didn't need to configure it anymore. There used to be a few configuration settings that you needed to set, you know, high enough or correctly. 
before that time. And I didn't realize, I, for me, that was a segue to some other paths I was working on. Um, but after that was released, people were people thanked me so much for getting rid of those configuration variables because they were so annoying. And and I didn't really realize that that was a problem that people had because I, I hadn't run into that myself. Uh, after I that, still I was scars from those <laughs> variables being wrong in production. Many, many yeah. Scars. So that that was accidentally apparently a very good good a good change. Uh, after that, I've you know spoken with a lot. And a lot of time with users nowadays, but back then, not so much. And I guess that means that sometimes when you do get questions on Slack or email, maybe not in the hackers list, um, but the other lists, um, people are coming with frustrations. Um, and so all we've been focusing on the, on the path we had, or you all had as developers and Postgres hackers, that um, uh, that empathy that Claire talked about, um, th th that's, those are also moments when you're getting the, most, the best problem and the best feedback that you can react to. Um, do you find that um, you can mine for that kind of information in the lists? Yeah, I mean, there are some recurring themes that people run into, uh, I guess, but, uh, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to, I, I don't have like statistics on, you know, what is the most pressing problem that people have. I, I have some guesses. People complain about the vacuum all the time and there's a few others that people run into, but, um, but mostly those are also the common problems that if you Google them, you will find answers because someone else has already run into them and, and there's a blog post or two. Was it a big jump though to realize that those gucks weren't needed in the case of the free space map? I mean, sometimes we get used to things working a certain way. We take for granted, well, I've just got to do that. I didn't do it right. That's why it broke. Um, and then someone comes along and shows that it's not needed at all. I mean, it was a surprise to me because I didn't realize that this was the real problem that people are having. I just figured it's nice to get rid of a few settings. Um, but yeah, I, I guess users appreciated that. I found that it's not easy to use the list or other channels as a real development steering mechanism because often the the problems that people talk about or ask about are very far downstream of the source of a problem. And uh, one of the things that I found very useful in doing consulting is that it will allow to get to the source of problem and then uh, address that instead of like people like talking about the consequences uh, about a, of a problem that are not easily diagnosable. And it's so hard to diagnose complex problems remotely via email or via other uh, such channels. Okay, so I think it's time for us to wrap. We have one last question that we want to ask each of you. Pina? Yes, we wanted to ask you if you could give advice to your younger self to say uh, a past Andres or a past Heike um, about how to forge your path as a developer and in Postgres, what would that advice be? Um, Andres, do you want to go first? It really depends on which Andres, like which version of Andres. Uh, one of the first in the Postgres community was that took me a while to learn was that I had to adapt my language to not I used my like, technical German is much more blunt uh, than English, 
and I had a lot of conflicts in the early years that turned out to be just me not understanding that I need to can't translate everything literally and have to adapt more on that and that the number of conflicts I had and just reduced drastically after that and it made it much easier to collaborate and I think it's interesting to have to learn that you have to adapt to the audience much more than I was aware at the time. Andres, is that something common uh, still still today uh, or something personal to you? Is 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 technical language in German, I mean, people tend to speak bluntly to each other and... It's much more that... direct as a language, I think. Uh -huh. So if you translate it literally in technical, not technical context, it comes over as, yeah, insultingly blunt. Whereas it's just like, oh yeah, you just stated a fact, so you formulate it as a quick fact. And that doesn't necessarily work well. So that, that, that's, uh, that's, that's a problem. People that... have that problem. Right. Okay. So that'll, that's a problem that's not going to go away. N new, new developers, new, new uh, German speakers will have that problem, and folks that interact with them might find it useful to to learn that um, because they'll adjust their expectations as well. Yeah, it's generally like learning that you have to take into the background of people into account uh, is something that I think was important for me and is important, I think, for a lot of people. I, I think we could extrapolate from that lesson, which sounds like it was about um, the German language being translated to English and different cultural um, expectations for, you know, how you communicate. But in general, like when people are communicating only in email and it's not face to face and it's not verbal or, you know, on the phone or whatever, I think there's a lot of cultures where the written voice can come across as harsh unintentionally so. And I've seen misunderstandings over every year of my career. Not, uh, luckily, I'm not always in the center. You know, sometimes it's it's my teammates, but um, I've, it happens over and over again. And that's why that there's that common advice that sometimes you have to pick up the phone, right? Because in writing, you're just going to keep missing each other. I don't know if y'all would agree, but that's that's my learning. I found okay. that conflicts are harder to do via phone because, like, not always, but often because you, there's no cool off period between reacting and uh, hearing and reacting. Whereas, like, with email, I don't know, lots of people, I definitely write a response and delete it and write it anew, and that's harder to do on phone. Uh, sometimes and write technical it and delete it. And write it and delete it. Yeah, technical differences are sometimes easier to uh, like resolve if you can hear where people are certain, where, where they're not certain. But some types of interpersonal stuff is harder for me. Okay, hey, Key, back to Pino's question about giving advice to your younger self about how to forge a path as a developer and in Postgres. Gosh, I, I don't have any big regrets uh, in my career and path, so I, I think the advice would be like, it's going to be all right. What do you mean by that? It's going to be all right. Well, you know, when you're young, you don't know what's, what's going to come in the future. So I think it will be comforting for everyone to know that, you know, good things will come. Uh, you know, things will be all right. Don't stress. Right. Actually, don't my second answer was that don't stress too much about what's happening in the moment. Uh, 
the long term is something very different than the short term. Okay. Well, on that note, that it's going to be all right. Um, I want to thank both of you, Andres Freund and Heike Lina Kangas, for joining us today um, on Paths of Satiscon, our still somewhat new in our first year podcast um, for developers who, who love Postgres. Uh, really appreciate your time. Um, this will be published in the next 48 hours, so it's going to be available on all the podcast platforms for those of you who listen live and want to share the link with other people. Um, our next episode uh, will be recorded on Wednesday, November 1st, also at 10 a.m. PDT. And our guests for that are going to be Dimitri Fontaine and Vic Fearing with a topic of how to solve every data problem in SQL. Um, those of you who want to mark your calendar now can um, go to aka.ms slash path to CITUSCon, all one word, hyphen EP09, actually it's EP09, hyphen Cal, and we'll drop that link in the text chat as well. Before we leave, we just want to ask you a favor, and especially if you've enjoyed the podcast, please, please, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps other folks find this new show. and. Last but not at all least, a huge thank you to everyone who joined the recording live and participated in the live text chat on Discord. Thanks for having us. This was fun. Thank, thank you. you, Andres. Thank you, Heiki. Thanks, Andres. Thanks, Heiki.